Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm with Reed. Reed, for everyone out there listening, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Reed Kirby, military historian. I specialize in the uh, history of chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear weapons technology in um, the United States, particularly with emphasis in the Cold War. Can I ask how you got focused into that particular area? Uh, yeah. I would say that I got focused in it uh, about 30 plus years ago. And at the time, the reason why I got into it was, um, you know, nuclear weapons during the Cold War and the possibility of nuclear war was top of mind for everybody. But then there was a lot of debate about these other types of weapons. And I was curious as to what was the purpose behind them and what are they? Because there wasn't as much information about chemical biological weapons. They were kind of out there, but a mystery. So I decided to study those areas and try to understand it. And uh, I found it in a way a curiosity because it was a kind of an interface between uh, history, um, military doctrine, uh, politics, international law, science, technology, all these different areas like converged in there to understand it. It's one of those kind of areas where the uh, parts seem to be bigger than the whole. Yeah, so I got into it. Well, with even the introduction to biological or chemical warfare, I mean, I know there's a, there's a ban on it. Um, it just, it's been throughout our history from what I've known. I mean, there's been poisonings from way back in ancient history in a sense as well, too. We consider warfare like giant war fronts of using bombs and things They're like, yeah, but there's always been like poisoning of drinks. There's always been like assassinations. There's always been these types of things. And with technology, we just got really good at finding specific things and finding out what we can do with that specific thing. And I always mention like Operation Paperclip is a big example. Um, if you look into, there's a plan called Operation Secret Cherry Blossoms at Night, which was from Japan before we dropped the bombs with on Hiroshima and everything, was this aspect of they had a planned submarine that was going to launch these missiles or bombs. And it had, they were filled with like 150,000 fleas, I think it was. And each yeah, flea was- bomb. It was it was filled with freaking bubonic plague, and you're just like, what is going on right now? Yeah, so the Japanese in World War II, uh, they went all in on biological warfare and had, uh, as you know, Unit 731, and um, they couldn't get aerosols to work as a form of uh, infection, so they shortcutted it and created weapons based on plague fleas infecting fleas and then putting them in bombs and they to make the work their most successful bomb was this uji bomb it was a porcelain bomb with primacord wrapped around it and they drop and explode and release a bunch of fleas down on the ground uh, the operation you talk about that was a i-400 submarine that had an airplane that would come out they were planning on having that like fly over san francisco and drop plague fleas on san francisco 
uh, the army, I think it was actually the Japanese Navy heard about it and they canceled it because they just thought it was uh, a really bad idea to do that. And then the, after we took Saipan, the Japanese were also planning to uh, use plague fleas to contaminate the airfield. The uh, ship that carried that with the, um, the, their arsenal of plague fleas and uh, the biological warfare experts was sunk by a U.S. submarine and never reached its staging point. You, you got to look like, especially with the field that you're in, you got to kind of look at this. and You got to kind of have like an astounding look at it all. Like for me, for instance, I'm hearing more in depth about it and I'm kind of just astounded by like, holy crap, this is like really like kind of strategic and really kind of figured out. Not necessarily, I would say figured out, but more like it's insane. But the general public like, oh, my God, that sounds horrible. It's just like, yeah, but you, you got to look at it like through the times that was going on back then. And I look at that like a major stride for human innovation in a sense. It is bad. Bad, but at the same time, it's like it's fascinating to think. I mean, when we first started, I mean, the Black Plague was a good example of, you know, that could be technically, I know it's, I wouldn't say controversial, but a little bit of biological warfare when it comes to the aspect of they didn't intend to bring rats over that were sick, but that was a consequence of what happens. And it kind of just enters this area of exploration where when you come across like the World War and everything, that's when things really started to kind of take off. Yeah, we look at uh, one way we look back at it is um, you have, like you brought up, you have poisoning since ancient times. Put something in someone's drink, they fall asleep, and then you can capture your enemy, kill them, whatever. And then you have also poisoned weapons where it's poisoned arrows and spears. That's been around since the invention of arrows and spears. The uh, what we consider chemical biological weapons today, where it's some kind of projectile or boblet that bursts and creates an aerosol and vapor that kills and incapacitates people, that wasn't possible until the Industrial Revolution, specifically the Second Industrial Revolution, where we started producing chemicals in mass. Um, so, what you see is this technological shift in the 1870s to where people started looking at this and saying, hey, we understand how diseases work with Koch's theorem on diseases. We understand we can produce chemicals in mass. So now we can actually take those kind of ideas, those things, instead of having them in a weapon, like a poison spear or something, we can use that as the weapon and release it. That's where the First World War happens. It's what's called the chemist war because the chemical industry was prominent enough in Germany that um, they leveraged that to create weapons with, and everyone responded in kind. Who was the forefront of biological and chemical warfare? Um, so Germany was probably the most advanced, but Germany was also the uh, world's leader in the chemical industry all the way up into uh, the Second World War. The um, Fritz Haber is someone that is often cited as being the father of chemical warfare because he was the one that proposed using chlorine gas at Ypres in um, 1915. The, uh, and there's other players there as well, but that's the person that people figuratively look at. Uh, as far as biological warfare, it's a little more murky. Uh, you could look at the Japanese and uh, look at the guy that was leading um, Unit 731, in the United States, uh, George Merck was the head of our program as lead consul civilian consultant to the 
War Department on this, but that's fairly bureaucratic. And then if you look at the British program, there was a guy named Fields. So it wasn't something driven by uh, individual personalities. It was driven by nation states creating programs to extend chemical warfare. Were they all exploring kind of like the same ideas or did each one have different ideas of what methods to use to, as they would see, I guess, as the most effective? Well, yeah, most definitely they had some different ideas early on. So in the 1930s, Japan, Russia, and other countries that were kind of exploring biological warfare, they weren't sure how to make it work. So you did see where the Japanese tried to do it with uh, aerosols. They couldn't quite get that to work. So then they started using plague fleas. That was their concept. Uh, Russia was kind of the same way, but they also leveraged doing aerosols as well. And then the United States looked at it um, initially as an extension of chemical warfare, just like the British did. The British preceded the United States. But there's a lot of ideas that were just uh, kind of nutty at the beginning. I'll say like Canada was for the allies. Canada was the pioneer. They were the first ones to come out with biological weapons. They had their own program. And in that one there, they were going to use cystocosis or what we call parrot fever. And their idea was, well, we need a way to get it down to the ground. So they're going to mix it with sawdust as a carrier. Well, okay, that doesn't necessarily cause any infection, though. <laughs> so the concept, they had the idea, they had like, they knew how to make a disease. They knew how to grow a disease agent, but then how to deliver it was still a mystery. Well, and that was it took a lot of technology to understand how to do the delivery. That was like the issue with fleas as well, too, is that fleas necessarily don't like human tissue. So the issue with having like a bunch of like, you know, infection into have a body or somebody infected with fleas is it's not necessarily I mean, it's not impossible. It's just not like the main thing that you would go to. Yeah, the United States uh, explored using uh, fleas as a vector for biological warfare. Um, I want to say about 1955, around about so. And they did this experiment called Big, uh, Big Itch. And they took, some, um, they took some cluster bombs out to Dugway Proving Ground, and they released a bunch of uninfected fleas. Humorously, one of the uh, bombs leaked on the uh, B-29 bomber, and it caused a lot of um, confusion with the crew as it leaked and started biting the crew. <laughs> But they got this out and they covered an area that was um, roughly like 150 meters in diameter with uh, fleas. And if they put a guinea pig out there, about 80% of them got bit by a flea. So they were like saying, oh, we mixed that with plague, that would possibly cause 80% casualties, right? Well, the Canadians looked at it, along with the British, they saw the results of this. And they said, here's the problem with that. The plague flea, the flea that you picked doesn't have the vectoral capacity to really spread plague. And the problem with it is, is for us to get it infected, really only about half of them at best would probably be infective. So there's a lot of there's a lot of technical complications with that. And then of course you have the problem of if you test on the desert, there's no other competing animals out there except for the test subjects, the guinea pigs. If you put it in the field, like somewhere in Central Europe, well, you know, deers, dogs, and other things are going to pick up most of your fleas. 
So was a lot of it limited just to only being used in warfare? Like trial and error seems like you best you have to try it out and it seems like you can't really do that in an aspect of like if you're going to test it out in a desert and you wanted to infect things, you can't do anything there because there might not be anything for it to infect. So you have to look at using them for war purposes or at least maybe on simple like single subjects I could see. I mean, that's probably where we get like I've heard CIA people that were involved. Howard Hunt has a really popular video where he talks about we were talking about slathering lsd on a driver's steering wheel like i don't know if that's possible but i mean there's these methods that come later well so you have uh in the in the united states program um you had this thing to where um we had an initial plan to deliver brucellosis uh cluster bombs for the air force and they were to use that against the soviet union along with nuclear weapons and 1954 was their delivery date when they were hoping to have the program running. It got canceled before that. And then they had another one, a crash program, because they didn't like that. That one proved not to be logistically feasible. So then they had a crash program for anthrax cluster bombs. And um, that one also didn't get standardized. And in both cases, it was because they couldn't prove what the human dose response was for these agents. And you have to know that because it's a difference of saying, well, if it's, is it going to be one bomb per per square mile or is it going to be 10, 100, 1,000? You need to know that. And based on animal studies, which is how we figured it out, or based on uh, examination of laboratory accidents, we didn't have a lot of confidence in that. So then you had a program in the United States called White Coat, where we did do uh, human trials with disease agents. And the purpose of that was to get that kind of dose response data, in addition to uh, working on better methods of protecting soldiers from um, with prophylactics and treatments and things like that. But initially, you had to infect those people, those volunteers, to determine to get them infected to be able to do any prophylactic studies thereafter. So that work was being done. But the thing is, you could only do that ethically with incapacitating biological agents or diseases that will have less than a 1% chance of lethality or are treatable. So the United States had a program for doing that. And that um, led us, we had to have that kind of work so that we could have the confidence of having a usable biological weapon. The uh, Air Force lost interest in biological weapons about 1957, and then it had to be kind of like rekindled with this idea of using, um, of having incapacitating weapons, controlled temporary incapacitation. And that uh, effort took off in the 1960s until the program was, um, until the United States renounced biological warfare independently 1969 when we talk about when they renounced biological warfare and just all those concepts in general do you notice that it didn't stop but it kind of just changed into a different method like when did they start researching more into like the drug aspect of things as well too well that's a different thing so in the united states too there while both chemical and biological warfare were under the army chemical corps 
they had two different programs. They had 15A, which was chemical at the Army Chemical Center in Edgewood, Maryland. And they had um, 15B, which was the biological program out of Fort Detrick. So they were two separate items. The drug research was also done for incapacitation, another novel idea, this idea that you could have a war without death, uh, fear gas, concepts to where you could use something on an intermixed population of soldiers and civilians and then knock them out and separate them. That took off at the Army Chemical Center, and that kind of drug research uh, went on into the 1970s because we got out of biologic warfare in 69, but we didn't get out of chemical warfare until 1991. And then we signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, which was out of warfare in 93. So it was just biological warfare on, I guess, a dangerous foot compared to chemical warfare at the time? Was on a what? A more dangerous foot. Like, obviously, if you're banning that one first, that means you're seeing the, it leading down a darker path than what you've seen with chemical warfare. So you're yeah. holding out for... The um, problem with biological warfare was it was a Rube Goldberg of um, assumptions and dependencies. So if you looked at it, it's like, well, okay, we, the way I would look at it is there's like four things you have to do. You have to be able to grow a lot of um, biological agent at a potency that's stable in storage for a reasonable period of time. And that's, and we're talking about doing that in the uh, hundreds of kilograms range. And then you have the uh, aerobiology. It has to be something that you can disseminate as an aerosol. That aerosol has to be able to um, survive long enough in the air that it could possibly infect someone. And then atmospheric diffusion, that aerosol has to cover a large area to be an air, have an area effect. And then the last part was like the white coat thing where you have to be able to prove the dose response. Those four things line up from line up to making a functioning biological weapon. But there's a lot of assumptions in every single one of those steps. So when it got down to it, one of the things that was amazing is during the Cold War, you had some people in the military who were strong proponents for biological weapons. But then when they started to have to implement them within a force, they became strong opponents to biological weapons because they started to realize there's a lot of shortcomings to it. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, so the scenarios they had on there was like, yeah, these uh, they sound interesting on paper, but the devil's in the details. So there was really low confidence that they would work. And we thought, well, let's just get out of it. And um, 1969, President Nixon renounced biological warfare. And it's kind of like with chemical warfare, there's not as much lethality from what I'm seeing, at least when it comes to the drugs that they're experimenting with compared to biological warfare. It's kind of this method that we've always used, and it's used in medicine. It was used in the Vietnam War when it came to Agent Orange, which is like torch the fields. And that's kind of like everything where it's like if you look at biological warfare, you know, dropping it and then trying to find out the radius of damage that it's going to do i mean there are people are from what i've heard is the containment was a big issue as well too like if you look at um agent orange 
they thought that the most damage would be to the fields and the people that were exposed to the spraying of the chemicals. But they found out that it was actually a lot of the people that were guarding the tents where the oil drums were because it wasn't contained properly. It's like, just like you talked about with the bomber that had a little bit of a leak as well too. There's, it's, a, it's, it's very weird to get the science manipulated to where you can use it for war purposes, but then trying to contain it for so long. It's not just cost of it's, I mean, it's inefficient in general. I mean, at there's a time, um, maybe where you're at war all the time Fritz Haber's son wrote a book about uh, chemical warfare in the first world war and one of his uh, one of his conclusions of it was whatever advantage gas warfare bought on the battlefield was more than made up by the expense of the laboratory and manufacturing and the home front that if they had used that instead for just making more conventional weapons, they would have possibly had better effects. That was so, how he viewed it. Do you think that maybe the ban wouldn't have been just an aspect of like the damage that it does, but just the maintenance, I'd say, in trying to keep the cost and production aspects of things? I don't understand what you mean there. So like, for instance, when the ban came to be, Instead of looking at the ban as something of like, oh, we just got to make this is a dangerous thing. Let's just agree to not explore this route. You think it would just be easier to be like, we can say that, but really it's because it's so damn hard to maintenance and keep up the production of all these things as well, too. Well, yeah, that's that is in many ways kind of where um, my writing comes into this on this subject is that. A lot of it is if you really do look at those details, you start to realize that, yeah, everything is always, well, it would work if it wasn't for this. And then you look at it and it's like, all right, then they have to do more effort to fix that. It's never, it's always like a dollar short and a day late. And getting that, um, getting that story out there is important because you see lots of things in the history and the technical details to where it's like, uh, this would be a great, wonderful warhead. Could wipe out a large area, like an entire brigade. The only problem is a little piece of uh, styrofoam inside of it um, blocks the uh, detents and the uh, fuses. So half the bomblets don't go off. <laughs> you see a lot of those kind of things. Or the uh, spray tank doesn't work because the airplane loitered at a altitude at a higher altitude for a few minutes longer and it froze up the equipment well when i was looking and learning more a little bit more about the cold war it seemed like there was a lot of things that were being established in the guise of like we agree that this is not only just bad for both of us and it was kind of like this like moral proclamations of why these treaties came like we want to save the earth and save our people this type of thing and i go I mean, I think that caused people to look back and go, what happened? Where did we lose focus? And I'm like, I don't think that was our focus. I think that's just what we're reading in history books, which you got to examine it through the aspect of like, what's the main motivator today would be the same motivator back then, which is money. I mean, and you look at how much they cost to make all these types of things. And based on the time and the energy that goes into it, it goes, it just seems like more of a hassle. We might as well, you know, just cut out of it and you find a good escape hole. Yeah, there was, um, so one of the things that was envisioned during the Cold War was creating a biological capability for like B-52 bombers to cover large areas with uh, rabbit fever. 
as a co-deterrent with nuclear weapons. Um, McNamara got rid of, the, and it was considerably cheaper than nuclear weapons, but McNamara got rid of that because he's like, we already have nuclear weapons, so why do we need a co-deterrent? It's just an added cost. So he canceled that. And um, then you have this other thing that comes out is this like um, a guy named Matthew Meselson. He worked at ACTA and he proposed and at ACTA, he said, here's the problem he saw in 1963. He's like, we already have nuclear weapons. We don't need cheaper weapons. Cheaper weapons only benefit other countries that don't have the money to acquire nuclear weapons. And another guy that I talked to who was uh, at the Defense Department, his point of view on it was the United States has lots of money and we will spend money even on ideas that don't work. But the problem is other countries look at that and see that we're spending money on it. So they think they too should be investing in it. That's kind of like, um, what do you call it? Uh, with uh, Men Who Stare at Goats, that movie with George Clooney. <laughs> we did that on a freak. That, that's a great movie, but we did yeah. that on a tip off from some person that was spy or whatever that found out that Russia was investigating psychological warriors, which wasn't true, or they gave up their program or something like that. And then we spend all this money trying to do remote viewing and all these concepts out there that made a great film. Yeah. And that's the thing is you have people that says, oh, well, you know, if they're, if they're investigating it, there must be something there. So we should be investigating it. And there's no there there. There's uh, one thing I thought was um, interesting. I was reading, it gets, part of this is you get into this whole philosophy of what is a weapon, you know, and th that we invent things thinking it is something, but that doesn't necessarily mean it really is something. And there was a example was in radiological warfare 1948 there's a memo where um the interest of, of radiological warfare came up again after a report said it's there's nothing to investigate here and the uh, author of the memo said just because there's something called radiological warfare doesn't actually mean it's a thing and then he says, we've studied this and it's, we can see that there's no real effectiveness here, but then again, we should leave no stone unturned. So we should continue to investigate. It's and kind that was, of, well, it's kind of like, that's the thing is like, how much of this is fueled by paranoia when you really start going, that's why I bring up the aspect of things when like, even if we made a ban, like no more researching into biological weapons or chemical weapons, whatever you want to say, I go, Nobody's taken that like that's good on paper. Sure. But, you know, people are still going to keep experimenting like secretly or doing something behind the curtain, maybe not use anything, but you've opened up Pandora's box. There's now this whole avenue of weaponizing little bits of bacteria or little bits of this and turning it into something that is maybe less destructive to the environment, but in a sense can be more lethal. Well, OK, so there's a uh, there's an arms control person who. Um, pointed out that even a small nuclear war between um, lesser nuclear powers like Pakistan and India, just 25 uh, nuclear bursts could create enough of a uh, global win nuclear winter that it could threaten the lives of about 2 billion people in, in the world. And uh, so because of that, we should look at other alternatives for deterrence. 
And one of the ideas he proposed was biological warfare as an alternative to nuclear warfare for environmental reasons. And now, you know, people I know in the arms control community, they just freaked out over that because it's like, yeah, no, biological warfare, we close that door, we don't want to open that again. I just picture the guy who said environmental reasons and he opens up his shirt and it's a captain planet t-shirt or something like that. <laughs> like trying to sales pitch that at the board meeting had to be difficult. It, it was an idea that uh, a lot of people had a lot of difficulty with <laughs> when it comes but, to, cause well, right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, but your, your reasoning there is definitely how the program even started. I mean, the British didn't get really interested in it. They, their interest in it was because they assumed that the Germans were doing it. And the Germans did do were working on it, but they weren't really working on it. They were working at it on a very small laboratory scale. And the British got involved in it, and the United States got involved in it. And ultimately, the way policymakers looked at it was they wanted to avoid being surprised. They didn't want to have a technological Pearl Harbor. And that's largely where the motivation came from whether or not but then you get into this thing of saying but if you're going to spend all that money making something are you going to do it to use it or not and there was one uh, budgetary guy who said to uh, eisenhower he says if we intend to use it we're not spending enough and if we are not going to use it we're spending too much I believe a lot of it is probably to deter in case something does happen, because I think when you have everybody fueled with paranoia in that sense, you're definitely going to come across similar things or at least things that you could probably find. Because once you're exploring down this route, you're also trying to and I think we started to become more aware of and you could see it kind of through history, not just I mean, even in ancient times, people writing down like what's an antidote to this, you know, like you eat a poison flower, let's try and find methods of like, you know, fixing it in case it goes wrong or something like that. So I think we probably still carried it at that same capacity if we're going to explore biological weapons. What can we do if someone's exposed to the area that it went off or something and we can, you know, have this type of antidote with it? Yeah, the contemporary argument on that is this gain of function research where someone is trying to take an existing natural virus and then make it more virulent, more infectious and study that. I don't think it was a planned weapon. I think it was an accident. I 100% think. <laughs> well, I, I think so too. But the thing I'm getting at is gain of function research is out there. And it's a way of doing scientific inquiry on what the capability is at a genetic level, right? But you have this idea that, well, should we be doing gain of function type of research and then trying to come up with countermeasures for that? And this is an area that's um, difficult because you have a a possibility that the really the only major threat is a lab leak of someone doing crazy gain of function research without any oversight. The other thing, though, I think is important here is that it's not necessarily a a uh, weapon versus counter weapon type of paradigm. The number one thing you can have against biological weapons is a functioning healthcare system having a good hygiene, having healthy communities. Because as long as communities are healthy and you've got good medical support, it negates most of the effect. 
Well, that's the one thing about I brought up a couple of times to a couple like COVID scientists or COVID researchers. So we don't really live in a healthcare system. We live in a disease care system. Like it's kind of it's kind of set up that way. I mean, a lot of people don't agree, but I think it it is. I mean, it's just from what I've experienced and what from I've noticed. Um, but do you expect like even with biological warfare, is there like a large kind of gap of like when it comes to a natural antidote would be a lot that happens to do with our own immune systems too. Like I get there's some extreme scenarios where we're exposed to something and it would be terrible. But I also think with the way that like, if you talk about gain of function research, if you talk about this, there's a like a good amount that our immune system, just common things like our bodies being in healthy shape are, you know, being exposed to enough sunlight. I didn't even, I didn't start going outside until I realized how important vitamin D was. Well, I mean, this is one thing that I definitely know, and we know this from research. We know that um, if people do not have the right nutrients, they are like six times more prone to disease than those that do receive proper nutrients. So health status has a lot to do with what the response is. Well, it's a, that's a good push for the government not to test on American population because we are necessarily not getting the right nutrients. Yeah, no one should be testing on the American population. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, Edgewood, Maryland. I want to talk about the Edgewood experiments because I heard this on your episode of Coast to Coast and I was just, I'm, I'm fascinated. I want to go a little bit deeper into like Dr. Delirium. I know um, that's mentioned as well too. Uh, can you walk me through what Edgewood experiments are? Yeah, so um, as I said, the um, chemical warfare program for the United States started in the First World War. It was the Chemist's War, and it was the first time science and industry was mobilized for war, and it was mobilized primarily for chemical warfare. At the end of the war, they took the entire program and they moved it into Edgewood Arsenal, Maryland, and that became the home of the nation's chemical warfare technology. Um, this is under the old arsenal system. So that was our center for everything related to chemical warfare. And in the Cold War, you mentioned paperclip, for example. In the Cold War, we had um, discovered nerve agents after the, uh, Germany had invented them. We discovered them afterwards with them. and made that into a chemical weapons capability. They had also psychochemicals in the 1950s. These came about and they looked at them and says that these could have a dramatic effect because they uh, make it to where a person is possibly incapable of fighting from hallucinating. Um, so the experimental side of it took place there. Um, they've always had experiments from the First World War onwards. Uh, for example, there's a book by National Academy of Sciences that's well worth reading called Veterans at Risk. And that describes World War II where we had almost 70,000 uh, veterans that were from uh, chemical weapons experiments in the Second World War with mustard gas and some other related agents. The, um, but in the Cold War, we did a few experiments with nerve agents to understand how they work, how to treat them, things like that. But then this psychochemical program was an idea, hey, we could do something with chemicals that incapacitate people. They don't kill people. And that's the design behind them. Uh, also, the tear agents were um, innovated 
during that same time period because they could be used tactically without killing people. And um, those experiments took place at Edgewood because they needed to prove that they had an effect, know the dose response to them. But where it was fascinating about it was that the military, as the end user looks at it, and they're like saying, well, okay, the guy's hallucinating, but are they incapable of fighting? So they had to prove that these would be weapons that would actually make someone incapable of fighting, not just seeing, having a uh, lucid dream of some sort. And that's where a lot of that research came from, was proving that these were usable weapons. When it comes to it being an effective method, they were still – like they became violent, some of them did. when, it, So it wasn't really – like because – this is like a, I mean, I know this is like treading in kind of like care, like controversial territory, I would say. But when I look at like Operation Midnight Climax, I mean, if you look at the events that were surrounding Operation Midnight Climax, I don't know if you, I'm sure you know what that is. Well, if you, it's, it's uh, to spark up animosity to tear up the anti hippie movement, you know, these protesters that didn't want to go to the Vietnam War. I don't know if that's controversial saying that, but. Everyone after that experiment or anyone after that, all these people that were freaking out on LSD and diners and all these sorts, they talked about how like they were mad at the hippies. You know, they thought it was the hippies that brought this drug. It's like the issue with marijuana, like the whole banning of marijuana. Necessarily, you're banning hemp, you're banning all these types of things that we had used this material long before because it was sales pitched and told to the public. It's the hippies that are bringing these the crazy war on drugs. drugs. Yes. Yeah. So you get into this area of like, I mean, I get it if you're a willing participant, like of being like, hey, yeah, shoot me up with some LSD or do whatever. That's that's your consent. But when you're doing it to just people to test out the experiments or see, you know, what goes nuts. And I go, if we start with, okay, these people can still fight at Edgewood, they can still fight, then this is could be a really good mind altering drug. And that's where you kind of lead down like into like what people would call conspiratorial, but I don't think it is. It's MK Ultra. That's known project yeah so that's you have to that's also very different and um so the army side of it was dealing with volunteers it had difficulties um, by today's standards most certainly not ethical by today's standards even at the time it was somewhat challenged but part of that was because the mentality at the time was that well you're not harming anyone you're giving them a mind-altering drug it's like getting them drunk that's not harmful. It's so there was an added, there was a, uh, there was an attitude that didn't take it seriously because of that. That would be my, that's my opinion. The, um, and as we explored in that documentary is that uh, there was, so you have this thing with LSD. And the problem with LSD was it's that fun. if it, Say what? It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, people can have uh, hallucinations on it, but if you put them in a life and death situation, like the building's on fire, they will snap themselves out of that hallucination and respond to it. So if they were a soldier on the battlefield and you put a rifle in their hands and you put them on and they get LSD, if someone's shooting at them, they could very well shoot back. So it couldn't compete with the adrenaline. Yeah, it's well, it, it couldn't, it wasn't, it was hallucinating, but it wasn't incapacitating. And that was something that 
the uh, army really had high hopes on the chemical core because it was roughly incapacitating at the same dosage levels as sarin nerve gas. Um, so then afterwards, they had a crash program for phenocyclidine, what they called Agent SN, or what we would call PCP or angel dust. Uh, that crash program was to deliver that at a dosage levels that are strong enough to put people in a coma-like condition. But as you said, the problem you have is maybe your target area, you have that kind of dosage. But over a much wider area, you have lower dosages. And those lower dosages would look more like Night of the Living Dead on a battlefield. Because you'd have a bunch of guys on PCP not feeling any pain and not thinking clearly either with weapons. Like that was the reverse effect getting the reverse effect so then you had um what we had was with jim ketchum he was brought in um as a psychiatrist a trained psychiatrist for doing psychiatric um behavioral toxicology type of work he was brought in because they had an incident where someone went into a coma with phenocyclidine and they realized that they need to improve their testing protocol. But he also, being a, he improved a lot of the treatment of people during these experiments. The other thing, though, that he did was um, he made it to where it wasn't qualitative. He made it quantitative. And he made it to where he could show in numeric tests at what point a person was incapacitated by a drug. That was a big boom. That's where we got Agent BZ from, which was a standardized chemical uh, through the from 1962 onwards until 1977. But that was a chemical that would cause delirium, where a person would be um, for several days would be delirious and have a lot of agitation and things. And be, violent behavior was seen with that, but I talked to Jim about that, and it's like it was only in the highest doses that people got violent, and that violence that they saw really wasn't people being fighting drunk type violence. It was them not understanding their surrounding and trying to escape. Which, I mean, in turn could be used to, depending on who the person is, could be like a heart attack situation as well, too. Yeah, it's the... um Defense Department looked at it, and um, under McNamara, they evaluated it, and they said that uh, psychochemicals produce too erratic behavior to be considered. So it was something that while we had it, there was no policymaker, military or civilian, that was willing to consider using it. Was that just because it was, I guess, probably too unstable? When you look at like the concept of trying to be able to, I, I mean, you can't predict who's going to take, I mean, everybody's body's different. You can't really predict um, where it's going to go, which I would see a giant push where we come into the movie, like men who stared goats, where they started using the government's supply of LSD and just having parties and listening to music and trying their best to go down this like superhuman route where, I mean, that's where a lot of people talk about the use of drugs to even today is this kind of like mind altering kind of body experience type thing where they find a inner being or find, a, you know, a higher form of themselves. And I go, 
man, that is a great way if you're looking up like at the time, obviously, but biological warriors or psychological warriors, whatever you want, like give them this drug that alters their experience to make them feel like they're in this situation that they can. That's, a, that's a totally different concept. And that's it's all actually different. more contemporary, more contemporary research is looking at saying, well, how can we uh, prevent soldiers from having battle fatigue or PTSD? And some of the stuff we uh, leveraged research that the Soviet Union did on um, their soldiers in Afghanistan, and they found that giving something like Valium to soldiers, well, it prevented them from getting um, PTSD or battle fatigue. It helped alleviate that, but it did it because they had no memory of committing horrible acts. And then that's another ethical question it's like okay so now you have people who are doing really bad things and you're giving them drugs so that they don't have that moral innate reaction to what they're doing not necessarily a good thing i yeah i didn't even think about not remembering the horrible things that you did as soon as you said like no ptsd i was like oh that sounds great and then you're like yeah but you don't remember doing horrible acts which brings in the question i think the whole thing of when you go to war that there is that conscious decision making of what you do it's those types of things that you need if someone ordered you to uh, kill civilians you would have the you'd have the innate revulsion to think this is wrong and not do it if you take a drug to where that's not the case to where you have a flat affect and you just follow orders that's not a good thing was there like because I know like in 2013, I heard of like in the UK, there was a Salisbury incident where I, I can't remember. Ex it was like a drug called Nova, Novachok or something like that. Yeah, it's a it's a series of nerve agents. So Novachok are uh, nerve agents that are not related to the um, family that was banned by the Chemical Weapons Convention. And the uh, nerve agents they have, they're somewhere between the potency they have like the potency of uh, vx nerve gas but they have the um volatility closer to the g agents like sarin or taboon and what they did is they had taken a sample of this some gru agents and they had applied it to some surfaces that uh, a kgb defector and his daughter had handled and um they then had these nerve agent effects and were then provided treatments for that. The uh, Unfortunately, then there's also the bottle that they used to apply it was a perfume bottle. And that's how they smuggled it. And um, two civilians uh, had found this and used it and died from it. So did they find like a, a, a use for this type of warfare in a sense of maybe transferring over to like espionage cases instead of using it grand scale? Yeah. So then you have this thing to where uh, when you brought up MK Ultra, that goes back to the army most certainly had a need, the Air Force had a need to fight big wars with lots of chemicals. So we had 35,000 tons of sarin, we had 5,000 tons of VX. And this was all intended to prevent the Soviet Union from using chemical weapons as an alternative to uh, nuclear weapons against NATO. So that was our deterrent, chemical deterrent. Big stuff like that. Then you have CS tear gas that we used in Vietnam. You have BZ. You could massive. Um, is there some kind of escalation? 
he had these kind of weapons, but they were more like BZ would be something like you'd consider for like a special operation or some unique situation. Then you have the side of it where it's special forces need things. And um, at Fort Detrick, they had the um, Special Operations Division, SOD, and they supplied uh, weaponry to American special forces. They had a series of biological weapons they called the Big Five. It was one of the things that they provided. But the CIA also had interest. And if you understand the history of special operations forces and the CIA, they both came out of the OSS from World War II. And they got split after that in the Cold War. The option, what was considered was you have clandestine agents around the world doing their bad things and collecting intelligence and stuff like that. But in a hot war, those guys would then coordinate kind of like a French resistance behind enemy lines and special operation forces would then go and train and equip those guys to be partisans against some Sino-Soviet invasion. Special forces had weapons to provide those guys that were supposed to be used behind enemy lines, but then the clandestine guys during peacetime also needed their own kind of weapons for assassination, interrogation, or sabotage type uses. And those are provided as well. And so you have a bunch of things there. It's like, yeah, you could provide in World War I, in World War II, they had um, uh, they had a suicide pill, the L pill. Sinai. Yeah. And they had a um, T, uh, TD pill, which was something to make someone talkative, thought to be possibly one of the first extracts of THC. And then they had a, a knockout pill, a K pill. So they had those kind of things that could be made available to OSS agents to use in the field. After that, you had, um, as you brought up, MK Ultra. Well, the weapons they provided were under MK Delta. And they had a catalog of these things, and that's where people could, agents could order like LSD for interrogation purposes or CS tear gas for escape and evasion or something like that. And there were some incidences to where the, uh, some of these things were considered. Uh, Patrice Lumumba in, um, in African Congo, uh, they wanted to assassinate him. So one thing they did is they brought a tube of toothpaste that had uh, possibly infected with brucellosis as a way of putting him aside. And, uh, and st that didn't happen. He ended up getting captured by his enemies and then uh, executed. The, um, but you see what the CIA was working on is there was like a difference in requirements. Special operation forces, they wanted things that were lethal. Like they wouldn't want something to tranquilize dogs to penetrate a perimeter. But if they took two shots, it would kill a man. On the other hand, the CIA didn't like that idea because they wanted things to be non-lethal because killing somebody would possibly be bad for their operations. Assassinating someone could possibly create a martyr. So they looked at things like um, BZ-related agents to where they could do. One of the examples they had was a um, something called uh, MK uh, Chickwit. You could take like a micro dot on a hand, shake someone's hand, and enough transfer would happen that the uh, chemical would penetrate their skin. And the, within a couple of days, the guy starts having a bunch of mental aberrations, hallucinations, delirium. And that lasts for a period of weeks. 
So the person then would seem like they're psychotic and would be taken out of action. Kind of like the interview when they made Kim Jong-un crap on himself. Exactly they like gave him a that. handshake. <laughs> That's what I try and say. I was like, this has been like throughout our history. It's even happening like today. There's like just media making movies about it. And the general public just glosses over some of those types of things. These things are possible, you know? What about like, I know because with Castro, there were like 693 attempts to kill Castro. And they had crazy planned ideas. And one was like uh, they wanted to slip something in his coffee and give him a heart attack and stuff. But which I know that they have uh, techniques to be able to slip you something, or raise your heart rate or give you a heart attack. But have you came across anything? And I've had only like one document guy, Larry Hancock, tell me that they have a thing for giving somebody cancer. Have you came across anything like that before? Well, I haven't seen anything to where the CIA had stuff available for causing cancer. Um, and it's not like the technology isn't there, like aflatoxins are known to be potent, uh, carcinogens, but they did have, uh, some chemicals that they did have some stuff that would do, um, later day bad things like tuberculosis. So you could have someone that have tuberculosis. Well, that could take years to actually deteriorate someone's health. So they had, they did have that kind of concept. It wasn't very mature. Because um, the other problem you have is if you look at these things, it's like, well, it's going to be kind of obvious if you, by today. You have this thing of where at the time it might look like it's totally non-attributable, but then the technology later can say, well, wait a minute, we can do a DNA probe and prove that this strain wasn't available or wasn't naturally occurring in that part of the world. It only existed in the laboratory. That is one of those kind of things that they weren't anticipating at the time. The uh, MK Ultra stuff in many ways was um, fairly amateurish in a scientific. It, it was really not very scientific. <laughs> well, it's trial and error. Yeah, it was really bad. It's still advanced to me when I look into MK Ultra. I'm like, I get like the auditory and like the hallucination effects they tried to play on people, giving them drugs, covering up the ears, covering up the eyes. But a lot of it goes into like very, very deceptive tactics where it's necessarily not warping, like trying to change the person, but it's necessarily just trying to change the person's idea of the reality around them at the time. They which... had some, they had some really, um, novel ideas that we would look at as almost pseudoscientific. Like they thought that the human mind worked like a tape recorder and all you had to do was um, erase the person's mentality and then you could replace it with something else. Sleeper agents. Sleeper agents. You could, you could brainwash them into being a sleeper agent or a, an assassin. You, you might've seen a Charles Bronson movie where, they would telephone someone, read off some poetry, and then the person will then drive a truck bomb somewhere. Well, what I know, but those ideas would be easier if you look at the people that they're picking out. Like if you're picking out someone with a borderline personality disorder that has maybe two split personalities, bipolar in a sense, or if you go to maybe what they usually did was go to like a prison or something and find someone who wasn't either in the, like, I, I remember I, I read a story and I, I it was on Wikipedia. It, so you can obviously validate it with that, um, which is an aspect of it might be real. It might not be, but Willowbrook State School. I didn't know that was an experimental place where this was, it used to be an old army facility, 
But what happened was it was turned into like a, I wouldn't call it a daycare, but it was turned into like a school for the mentally challenged. And at this time in history, people didn't know too much about what mentally challenged was. So a lot of parents would just drop off their kids and never check on them ever again. They just leave them there. And you can look this up. There are pictures of it, but they would stick like a hundred of them in a room naked and spray them with a hose and do all this crazy stuff. But they were injecting them with things like syphilis and they were injecting them with things like um, like tetanus, a bunch of really weird, like old school, like just weird age stuff. I think this was like around like the 80s or it was around something. I, I, I couldn't, uh, I'm not I, familiar with this, but <sighs> I, I really recommend looking into it because like I, I did an episode on it when I did another show um, about it because it was just like it's. I mean, it's it's just weird. It's not. I know ethics today is can't compare to the ethics back then, but just like the type of methods and the things that we choose to use. I mean, everything's so specific now. Like I brought up that Salisbury incident, like wiping that. Like Howard Hunt is a ex CIA guy during um you know Watergate and all those giant scandals. And on his deathbed, like I mentioned, talking about ideas of slathering LSD on a on a steering wheel to get someone to soak that up through their skin. The the thing is. is just like the um, CIA plots against Castro, you know, Castro survived all of them. The other things that uh, we see where Russia tries poisoning people, uh, if you look at the number of incidences, it's kind of like a 50% um, success rate of even poisoning someone, let alone killing them. So it's these techniques are, we've known since uh, ancient times that Poisoning is high risk. It's not guaranteed to produce results. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of ideas for doing it, but that doesn't necessarily make it something that is reliable and usable. I'm not questioning the, the lethality part. I'm questioning the aspect of the ideas these people come up with. Slathering LSD on a steering wheel, it, to me, like that has me questioning every time I get in my car now. Like I know nobody's going to do that to me, but it's just like somebody's thinking about that. Yeah, and they had uh, one uh, fairly trashy um, book that I had read suggested that someone had put like VX nerve gas on the pages of a Quran as a gift to uh, a state leader in hopes that that person would handle the pages and get enough transfer to possibly die from that. How, what about if that dude didn't touch the book and you had a bunch of other people touch the book? Yeah, or it sits on a shelf for a while and or gets checked into a library <laughs> <laughs> how long do those things like last like what's like the what's like i guess something that could kill somebody like 10 years later or something like that so this is this is kind of the interesting part so a lot of people that come up with the ideas on these things are not the same people that come up with the methods themselves and there's a bit of a disconnect they think these things from a very generic description do one thing but then the technology, the people involved with developing that technology, it's got a lot more nuance to it. So like VX, it evaporates fairly quickly. It's not something that's, it could be there a week later, but it's going to evaporate over a period of time. Now there's other things that have less evaporation will be more persistent. So it's not necessarily 
there's no free lunch. <laughs> I, I get that. No- <laughs> I just, I just had a little like scenario play in my head of someone thinking they have a poison stick of gum to give somebody like, yes, he ate the gum. And it's like, yeah, he'll die in probably six to eight years. You're like, what? I need him like gone tomorrow. And you're like, no, nah, that's not how this agent works. Well, and that's, that's a, a thing. Like you mentioned the possibility of someone producing cancer. Well, okay. Well, 50% of cancers can be treated successfully and they take years to actually kill someone. I'm looking at the, I pulled that from the JFK thing where I look at Jack Ruby. I was like, right before his court case, he gets all these like symptoms start speeding up really, really fast. And I'm just like, I don't know if the government, like I said, I don't, when it comes to chemical warfare, it comes to biological warfare, unless you specifically study it, the general public just has a very, very base understanding. At least I have a base understanding in it. So it's like all these sound really insane and kind of out there where it seems like it's impossible. But I also go like, you got to think of how long they've been doing it though. Like if you're researching into something, you end up perfecting those methods. They have. um, So you have this thing to where they to develop the technology, you need to go wide, just like any tech startup. You need to go wide. You need to experience and experiment with many different ideas to find one that will work. If you look at uh, one of the things I'm working on now uh, is anti-crop air power. You look at that from 1941 till the Vietnam War, there was lots of ideas, lots of concepts, lots of proposals being made. So it's a wide field of stuff. Then you get into the Vietnam War itself, and it turns into herbicides. And they go long on herbicides, trying to make it more effective. Monsanto's not even anti-crop. It ends up being defoliations, the primary purpose for it. They do all this work, they perfect it to where they end up to where um, they finally think they have the right doctrine, the right weapons, the right delivery system, the right methods. Right about that time, we cancel the program. And part of that is because, um, as one guy put it in the title of a book, he says, you know, the trees are not the enemy. Killing the trees doesn't necessarily change the battlefield condition. It has a dramatic effect in the concept of cover and concealment, but it doesn't necessarily win a war on its own. The other problem you have with it is we also find out that in addition to that, dioxin was in 245T, was a contaminant in that, and that's harmful to the environment and the people. And that's definitely not the intent either, because the uh, reason why it was acceptable to use defoliants was because they were considered to be harmless weed killers. Yeah, that's um. I had a guy on here. His name's Barto Elmore. He was on Joe Rogan talking about Monsanto's, and um, he wrote a book called Seed Money, and it's these Roundup Ready chemicals that we use, and it's in it's in our freaking food, dude. It goes like all oh, that same stuff. Ah, dude, it. I mean, I, that's why I say like when we talk about in the beginning, like keeping your body healthy in a sense as well, too. I mean, if we're people are in poor conditions and, you know, you're not getting the proper nutrients and you eat something that could have like a horrible chemical on it, you could see symptoms faster. You could be, you know, hurt more. Yeah. Well, and they had um, so for special forces and then also for the CIA, they had these unique devices they made. Um you might have seen in a church committee what looked like a 45 caliber pistol, and that fired a micro dart that uh, would feel like a bee sting. What? 
And that little bee sting would deliver enough botulinum toxin or uh, saxi toxin. Botulinum toxin is um, very lethal at extremely low doses. It's considered to be one of the most lethal substances known. And saxi toxin is one of the quickest acting poisons. It would kill you in like 30 seconds. So they have this concept of doing that. Well, they developed it even further to making a uh, micro javelin that you could conceal inside of a magazine or something, fire it at someone, and it would feel like a mosquito bite. And that would deliver the same kind of agent to do the same effect. But they're getting to a point to where, well, instead of delivering a toxin, you'd almost have to deliver a virus or something. Some people are on a different frequency, man. Some people are thinking about things I would never. I'm sitting over here worried about eating too many apple seeds because apparently they can't carry cyanide in them or something like that. So I'm like, I, you know, I'm thinking about that. Some person's thinking about making a gun that can fire a dart that can do. I'm just, yeah. And so they come up with all, they came up with these kind of concepts. But the thing you have is, again, they get to the operational side. They had similar devices when they're trying to get rid of uh, Castro. Uh, they had a tablet that had uh, botulinum toxin in it. And um, they delivered it to a guy that was supposed to put it in the uh, malt of Castro and visited a uh, hotel. Well, it froze to the inside of the freezer. And when the guy tried to remove it, the tablet broke. So he wasn't able to deliver it. You know. do, you, do you have a bigger respect or at least like an under, not, I would say definitely an understanding, but do you have like a bigger respect or just a different viewpoint than probably a lot of people do when you're researching all this? Like you don't look at it in a sense of like, this is horrible. And this, every country is evil. You look at it like, this is just really interesting. The complexity of a lot of these situations. The complexity is most certainly the fascinating part because you look at all these different ideas that these guys have, and they're trying to solve ultimately a political problem of one nature or another. I mean, even you know having an arsenal and nerve agent, there is a political problem. The Soviet Union could invade Western Europe, and they had a huge chemical arsenal. We were worried about it. Political problem. But Castro, another political problem. So it's like, well, how can we assassinate him? Because they definitely wanted him personally out of the way. So they come up with all these different concepts and ideas. And the there's three levels, there's three types of planning they have in the military. They have emergency plans, they have logistic plans, and then they have capability plans. And capability plans is where almost anybody can come up with an idea and says, here's a new way of doing something. And that's what you see is you see a lot of these capability plans where someone says, hey, I found a new agent. I found a new weapon. Here's what I think we could do with it. And they do this uh, kind of imagineering that almost looks like something out of G.I. Joe type of uh, ch children comics or something. And then people evaluate and consider, was that something that's actually able to be used? So you see a lot of the things where people look at it and say, well, here's all these horrible things. A lot of it isn't really, they're just ideas produced by people. And they may be bad ideas. They could definitely be horrible ideas because they could be, they're divorced from actual, any idea of where they're going to be used. And then you get into where it's like, okay, these things look promising. They start to look at logistics plans to where they say, well, can we provide it to the commanders in the field to be used? And then the commander in the field has to do war planning. And that's where it says, well, you only gave me so much of this. 
I only have um, this much time, this much resources. This is the best I think I can do with it. I and just, you look through that entire process and it's just like, yeah, there's a, um, there's a lot of things that just don't make it. When you put it in that context, it helps me understand it more. Cause what I was picturing before that was they just had a dartboard and they had a bunch of plans posted up and they're just tossing like, what are we going to try today? Well, and they have to have all these different capabilities because the thing is you don't know what the next crisis is going to be. So then it's, so for people like the Joint Chiefs, it's like, since we don't know what the next crisis is going to be, having as many capabilities as possible is necessary so we can figure out how to deal with it. Seems like the one that's kind of like in today's eye a little bit is um, anthrax bombs. I've talked to a few people that talk about making smart buildings for ventilation purposes in case there's like an anthrax leak or something like that. And I'm just like anthrax like how common is that being used for things of this sort and apparently it's pretty common well anthrax is a natural occurring animal disease uh when the united states was in the second world war working on uh, anthrax as a biological weapon vigo ordnance plant vigo correct the um surgeon general's comment on it was Anthrax isn't really all that important a disease of man. It's not really that particularly infectious, and it's um, more of a problem for cattle. And there was some doubts that it would even work because when they at Vigo, the um, or actually it wasn't at Vigo, it was at Fort Detrick, Camp Detrick at the time, they had a pilot plant making anthrax, and they were saying, you know, we would expect people to get respiratory mnemonic um, anthrax, and we didn't get any cases. We got a lot of cases of uh, cutaneous anthrax where it affected from scratches in the skin, but we didn't get any respiratory cases. So there's a, there was a lot of doubt that it would actually be uh, infective. And that problem, that's what ended the uh, crash program to get anthrax bombs in the Air Force was that they couldn't prove that it was infective. And so, but we still look at today as saying it's probably the easiest thing that could be made into a biological weapon. So it would be most likely the first choice of someone trying to make a weapon. And that's why we created a vaccine for it and deployed the, and uh, provided that to the soldiers was because by doing that, we negated that first wrong level of effort to making a weapon. You got to think about the number of chemical toxins that are out there that to one country might seem useless or might not, you know, your research could show you that there's no effectiveness in this at all, but then another country has different research where they're like, this is the most effective. Well, conversely, while I'm saying that the United States uh, found it to be unimportant, ultimately, the Soviet Union had huge factories churning this out had a large stockpile of anthrax. Was that in the 60s or 80s? That was in the 1980s. They, after the Biological Weapons Convention in 1975, they, um, they had had bio, uh, biological programs since the 1930s. But after 1975, they created a civilian program, Biopreparat, and that program was just like science run amok trying to create biological weapons it was a huge um, network of facilities and installations 
I know it's probably scarier, but I'm laughing at it because I just go immediately when you ban something, everyone wants to do that thing that you ban. I know it's it's almost like something out of the uh, evil characters of Star Trek or something. And it's like they look at a treaty as a punch list of what they should do. <laughs> well, look, Reed, I appreciate you for giving me your time and everything to do the podcast. Um, is there a place where people can find any of your links? Um, if they go out to Amazon.com, check out Reed Kirby. I have a uh, comic book out there for sale called The Sergeant and Biological Missile. It's a comic, a technical comic book that I made for arms control folks to uh, give them a case in point, a historic one to show how these things work. Uh, I have a, and I'll be publishing things out there periodically as well. Well, I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.